0: All right, real quick, before we get started with this week's episode, I was wondering if you guys could do me a huge favor. Head on over to the website, www.freshwaterbite.com, and uh, send me an email. Give me an email, and uh, let's talk about some things that you guys want to hear more of, fishing and hunting related, whether that's a guest you want to hear, a topic you want to cover, a species you want to talk more about, and or um, maybe some products that you guys would uh, like to know more about, too. I'm going to dive into some of that stuff. Remember to subscribe on iTunes and follow me on Instagram. I appreciate you all. And let's keep this thing rolling together. All right, here we go. You are listening to the Freshwater Bite Podcast. Hey, thanks for coming back for another episode. This one is uh, this one's a good one. It is going to make you think. It's going to make you become aware and more educated, hopefully, as a hunter and dealing with chronic wasting disease, which I'm sure you guys have all heard about by now. But um, I'm hoping that this is going to be either a good refresher for you or a brief scratch the surface introduction to the disease for you. And this is just, we, we just go so far in depth on a lot of things. I mean, this disease is relatively new to the state of Michigan, but it's not new to other states like Wisconsin, who has been like a guinea pig, but also given us a ton of valuable information that we can use to prevent the spread of this disease in our state here in Michigan. So if it wasn't for states coming together, sharing valuable information on what has been working and definitely what has not been working, we could be a lot further behind this thing here in in Michigan. But, man, it, we, it's just deep. I ask a lot of basic questions. Hopefully it answers some of your guys's um, some concerns that have been on your mind or maybe you just haven't been able to ask anybody about or there has been different theories out there. But you know what? It starts with us as hunters to help out. And I'm just going to shut up and, you know, let you guys get into this thing. So here we go. I'm with Chad Stewart from the Michigan DNR. And uh, this is a good one, guys. You're going to want to listen up. Okay, everyone, I want to welcome Chad Stewart to the podcast. Chad, thanks for uh, joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me, Lee. Appreciate it.
0: You bet. So the reason why I got you on today, as you probably know and we discussed, is we're going to talk CWD, that's chronic waste disease in the state of Michigan. Um, Before we get into the nitty-gritty of that, let's tell everybody who you are and what your role is at the DNR.
1: Yeah. So, uh, my role with the DNR is, uh, my title is the deer elk and moose management specialist, and probably 90 to 95% of that time goes towards deer. And with CWD sort of being a priority with the department, I've been spending a lot of time on that. So, uh, overall my job, what it entails is really sort of creating the regulations that, you know, when you pick up a hunting and trapping digest, um, that's, that's, that's what hunters look for in terms of being legal to go out into the woods, setting quotas, um, setting seasons that all has to be accomplished through uh, a procedure where we, we, we run those recommendations through or past, I guess what we call our natural resources commission. So I take some of the the science, the harvest data, the the check station data, and basically turn it into regulations. And that's really a crux of what I, I do here with, uh, with the DNR.
0: Now this is just the hunch, but I would bet that chronic waste disease is taking up a lot of your time nowadays.
1: Yeah, late lately uh it's been taking up virtually all of my time. Um we've uh we've been undertaking a pretty extensive process to sort of talk with people and understand the disease, what other states are doing with it, and then again crafting regulations. And that's, that's been a, a pretty intensive process really since the last deer season concluded. So it's, right. been, it's been a pretty intensive uh, approach that we've been taking, and I've, I've been involved in
0: that quite a bit. And I know a lot of people know what chronic waste disease is, but can you just kind of tell people a summary of what it is and actually the history of it, of where it uh, originated in the United States?
1: Yeah, so chronic wasting disease is a is a neurological disease that affects members of the deer family. So it affects uh, white-tailed deer, mule deer, uh, it affects elk, it affects moose. Uh, it's been identified in reindeer uh, over in Europe and I think just recently in a, a captive reindeer facility in Illinois. Um, and there's a couple other um uh, smaller species that we don't even have in North America that it could affect as well. But those are the primary ones from when you, when you look at it from a North American perspective. Um, and what it does is basically over time, uh, creates like an atrophy in, in your brain or your neurological tissue. So the agent that causes chronic wasting disease, um, is a, is what's called a prion and um every everybody every mammal has prions in their body so the word prion itself is not a bad thing um but what is cause what causes cwd is when these prions sort of misshape or abnormally fold and then they just don't work the same and the way i've had it explained to me is if you fold a piece of paper properly into like a paper airplane you can get it to fly pretty well. But if you just sort of crumble it up and try to throw it, it doesn't it doesn't move the same. And that's basically what's happening with with your healthy prions as they become misshapen and folded. They they almost take on a an infectious role and they serve as sort of a cookie cutter or a template for the healthy prions and then they sort of continue to replicate. And prions are are proteins, so they're they're not a living organism like um, when you think of things that cause an illness or a disease, like viruses or bacteria, those things have nucleic acids. Those things are living organisms and ultimately can be killed. Protein you can't kill because it's not alive. Um, and these prions, once they become misshapen, they they continue to accumulate in your body and ultimately um, create little holes, like microscopic holes, in your in your neurological tissue in your brainstem. And that obviously compromises your functioning. And over time, the animal, um, it it just sort of spaces out and, and it, it loses body functioning. And then it, it, if it, if it runs its course completely, the animal will, will basically starve. Um, it, it just wastes away and that's where the name comes from.
0: Gotcha. So it's like, you know, I've also heard of it as described as like Swiss cheese of the brain, puts a bunch of holes in your brain and what it does to the deer is basically it, it gives them or it takes away their ability to survive with all their survival instincts.
1: That's right. Yeah. So if you were to ever come across a deer that has chronic wasting disease, and I'm going to say in the late stages of the disease, okay. um, you're going to, you're going to see an animal that's really thin and, You're going to see an animal that is probably excessively salivating it's going to its head's going to be down its ears are going to be droopy like you're going to if you know if you're a hunter you're going to walk upon this animal and say this deer is not right um it's skinny it's it's body behavior isn't isn't the same it's you know it's not alert whatsoever and 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 that's not to say every deer that you see like that has chronic wasting disease i've seen deer with brain abscesses act the exact same way So really, the only way to confirm it is through a test. Now, the the challenge with chronic wasting disease is that animals can have this disease and look completely healthy for well over a year. Um, And meanwhile, they are still infectious. They're still shedding this infectious material into the environment where it can remain infectious to other animals. So other animals can contract it from the environment. But the animals look the same. And that's, what, that's what's the real challenge with, with CWD is if you started seeing animals that looked like they were emaciated and not alert and just looking sick all over the place, um, a lot of people would sort of rally and say, you yeah, know, this is something we don't want in our deer herd. The problem is you don't see that until it gets to the very late stages. And a lot of times the deer don't live that long to show those symptoms. But meanwhile, they're still contributing to that Environmental contamination, and more and more animals over time become exposed and infected with the disease, and that's what we're trying to prevent.
0: And let everyone know how, when you say it, um, it spreads. Uh, how are the deer spreading this in the in the environment?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, so these prions are have been shown to be infectious in, in a lot of different body fluids. So it's been. It's been confirmed that these animals shed prions in saliva, in feces, in urine. Um, It's been found in blood. So obviously when, you know, an animal is sharing like a a common food source, you know, there's saliva getting onto that and they're they're biting and chewing and more pieces are falling out and another animal's coming down and picking that up. They're, They're urinating, they're defecating in the same area. These prions are being shed into that environment. And once that biodegradable material um, goes away, you know, I mean, saliva doesn't last very long in the environment. Those prions persist and they continue to stay there and they could stay there potentially for years. Um, and And that's why we, you know, really when you talk about CWD, prevention is the best form of management because once you get it into the environment, it's almost impossible to get rid of it. There's no way to to, de, to, de, uh, to denature it. There's no way to get rid of it. Um, once it becomes environmental, it's extremely difficult to get rid of. And to my knowledge, there's only been one state that's been successful in getting rid of it. And that's that's New York. And they were somewhat fortunate. They found it very early, found it in a couple positive animals, um, did a pretty intensive uh, calling and, and de- hunting season around that area. And they've gone over 10 years without finding it again So in any other deer. So they had a little bit of stroke of luck. And they found it very early. Um, most states are not that fortunate. They Once they find it, it's not the first animal that they find. It's, it's been there for a while.
0: Gotcha. And before we start to talk about Michigan and when a, a Michigan, the first case, was confirmed, from my readings and from what I understand, it started out in Colorado back in 1967 from a deer farm. Is that correct?
1: Uh, so it was, it was identified in 1967, you know, we'll never know where it first came from. Um, so what, the way I understand that the history is that, um, there was a a research facility, um, I believe it was Colorado state. Um, don't, don't quote me on that, but they were doing some research on, uh, some, some scrapie and sheep, and they were also using some of those same pastures or part of that facility. For some nutritional studies with with elk, and they, they captured some elk, brought them in, um, did some nutritional studies, and ultimately let the let the elk go. Um, and then shortly after that, they uh, they started finding animals that had these symptoms of chronic wasting disease, and and it was it was finally identified to be a a prion related disease. Which um, these prion diseases are under a family of diseases called transmissible spongiform encephalopathies or or TSEs it's, uh, it's in the same family as like mad cow or in, in humans, what's called Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Um, so there, there's, there's sort of a, I don't know if it's a smoking gun, but it's, it's a, I don't know if it's a coincidence or what, but where some of these animals were first being identified, there was a lot of scrapy research going on and scrapy is another TSE in sheep. Um, and, and whether that, that, that uh, is a correlation between a a movement between species or just the fact that that's where they found it. Nobody really knows and no one really understands, but you're right. It was out West in 1967 when it was first um, identified.
0: Okay. And us being in the Midwest, we see it out in Colorado. It takes Mm -hmm. decades to get the the first confirmed case over in Michigan, but it 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 did jump over us, went to New York first, is that correct so it so so the path is so what i'm I'm trying to narrow the path of it, but it's expanding more eastward
1: yeah so the the path is really difficult to track because it's it's probably and almost certainly not not solely due to natural deer movements you right. know when when it's moving around, it's almost a hundred percent guaranteed being moved by people, so one of the common sayings for, for a lot of researchers is, you know, CWD is is moving, you know, is not moving one mile, one mile per year based on just how deer or elk move around the landscape. It's it's moving 55 miles an hour down down the highway right? because people are transporting either infectious live deer, infectious dead deer or, or some sort of infectious material associated with, you know, soil or contamination and potentially exposing it to new areas. So that's why you see these, these random jumps. So in 2002, um, it was really thought to be just a Western disease. And then in 2002 is when Wisconsin found it. And that was the first state East of the Mississippi river to identify it. And since then, um, you know, if you look at a map of where it is, most of the Midwestern states now have it, it's starting to, poke up a little bit in some of those northeastern and middle, mid-Atlantic states like uh, New York has had it don't seem to have it anymore but Pennsylvania's dealing with it Maryland West Virginia um, Virginia and then just recently down in down in Arkansas and even uh, Mississippi has identified it
0: damn and now it's in our great state of Michigan and it was confirmed was it was back in May of 2015 Yes. Yeah,
1: it was uh actually the deer was taken in April but I think it was finally confirmed in May um yeah. through an independent lab. So, yeah, that uh that's when the that's when Michigan's timeline technically started on the free-ranging side. If you remember back in 2008, it was identified in a captive deer facility.
0: Yep, I remember that. Uh,
1: outside of Grand Rapids. Um we did a lot of surveillance. They that 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 facility was depopulated. That there was never another animal that was found positive associated with that facility. Um, But from a free-ranging standpoint, 2015 is when our timeline started.
0: Okay, so now it's 2018. We've all been tracking this thing, you know, Woods and Waters, your guys' public announcements, keeping everyone informed. What counties right now are affected and kind of the general area?
1: Well, the counties that have identified chronic wasting disease— one is Ingham County. That's the first place we found it in 2015. It was in a little subdivision uh, in in Hazlitt, which is just outside of the East Lansing community. Um, later that year and, and uh, the following year, we found it in southern Clinton County, which is just sort of in the northwest part. Um, we did pick up a positive animal last year in Montcalm County. And once we found that first one in Montcalm County, we started finding a lot more Um and that's that seems to be where right now our, our highest known prevalence is. And prevalence basically just refers to the percentage that are infected over the percentage that are tested. So how many are positive with the disease and how many are not positive with the disease? Um, we've identified it in northeastern Kent County. Um, I don't know if I said uh, northern Ionia County, which is, again, just south of Montcalm County we found one animal there. And then just recently, we found a positive animal in Jackson County. So south of Ingham County. And that one was um, a little bit more unique. So the first animal we identified was a, a very skinny six-year-old doe. Um, she was exactly like we talked about earlier. She was she was very thin. Um, she was very much neurological. She was just sort of found in the sub community, just sort of staring at a house, not afraid of anything. Um, and she was put down and that's how we first found it. The one in Jackson County was reported to us. Um, the animal was, was seen the night before struggling to get up and they went out the next morning and she was dead and submitted, we submitted her for testing. And she was a 79 pound, uh, three-year-old female doe. Um, So obviously very skinny, um, obviously starting to suffer through some of those 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 late stage symptoms. Um, I think technically she probably died from uh, pneumonia, but pneumonia in June is a little bit more rare. And what CWD seemingly does is you don't necessarily die from CWD. You die from complications associated with CWD. It's like right. very few, very few people die from um, HIV or AIDS. You die from the complications surrounding that. It weakened your immune system. So this animal clearly was was extremely weak. Uh, ultimately, died. Um, actual cause of death was probably pneumonia, but obviously associated very much with chronic wasting disease. And, and she, t- so she tested positive and we have a, a new, a new focus center down there that we're trying to understand more about going into this hunting season.
0: Okay. And you, like you said, there was a six-year-old deer that was confirmed and then a three-year-old deer. So clearly it's affecting deers at different rates, just like any, you know, disease would in a human. You know, some people can... Live longer with it. Some people, you know, or some organisms die quicker from it. Is is that, I mean, there's really no way you could put your finger on that, but are you testing deer that, I mean, I guess is it possible for some deer to be more resistant to it than others?
1: Yes, yeah, so that's a good question. And that's, that's probably going to take some some talking here. Um, there, there's there's a lot going on in that question. So one, it's it's really whenever you're exposed. So we're testing really all deer or any any deer that is willing to be submitted in these areas and we have found fawns that have tested positive for CWD and we found older deer you know like that six-year-old doe that tested positive for CWD so when you talk about how the how the disease runs through or cycles through the body it's usually about an 18 to 24 month um, what they call an incubation period so before you start seeing the symptoms So really, it really depends on when you become exposed to it. And obviously, older deer um, have a lot more time on the landscape. They have a lot more time to be exposed to different things. And you tend to see a higher likelihood of older animals who have the infection, especially as, as time goes on. So as, as you get more and more infection building up or or prions building up in the environment, the likelihood of an older animal becoming exposed to it obviously is a lot greater than a younger animal just because they're they're, They've been out there a lot longer. Um, so there is some research that sort of supports, um, there's some, some genetic resistance to it. I don't think that any quote unquote immunity has been found yet. So, I don't think that there's been any deer out there that, no matter how much you feed or expose that 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 specific animal to a CWD prion, eventually they will contract the disease. Now there is there is one I know captive elk in I believe Wyoming that has been consistently living with other cwd affected elk and as those elk get sick and die this animal just continues to persist and continues to never show signs of it but she has a very rare genotype at least in the elk in the elk world and they're saying that there might be some resistance or even potential immunity for that that very small segment of elk that have that specific genotype in in white-tailed deer um there is, does appear to be a a resistant genotype, but that being said, they, they are not very well represented on the landscape. It appears. So, so that, that leaves some to question, well, will this simply just cycle through and mother nature will take care of itself and the more affected genotype eventually fade out over time. And this other one come, come become more pronounced. It's possible. You know, I, I, I have, I have questions or concerns about that because, one, it's sort of just you're relying on Mother Nature to fix it, which I'm a big fan of Mother Nature. Right. But, uh, you know, when you see how things tend to cycle through chronic wasting disease and, and time frame, it tends to spread a lot faster than genetic shifts occur. Those usually take thousands and thousands of years. The other thing that I think we need to know, learn more about is why is that one genotype so poorly represented on the landscape? Are they are they generally not as alert animals are they generally not as productive from a, a fawn production standpoint you know what what's going on with those so i'd i'd love to find out more and try to research that even if there is something about that but that's one of the concerns why why is that animal so poorly represented on the landscape relative to a more common genotype that seems to be more susceptible to
0: the disease and when you look at other states is there a reason uh, I'm I'm guessing this is due to hunters, but why you see more prevalence in uh, bucks than you do in does.
1: Yeah, uh, good question. And I think what it amounts to is just the general lifestyle of uh, adult bucks compared to adult does. Um, So when you think about the behavior that's associated with just say two and a half or three and a half year old doe and a two and a half or three and a half year old buck. Um, that two and a half year old doe or three and a half year old doe, you pretty much know where she's going to be hanging out. She has a fairly small home range. She's going to be hanging out with pretty much the same group of does, uh, and, and fawns in her, in her family group. And they, they don't really go too far. It's pretty established. She's, she's gotten enough age on her to, you know, be able to kick out any, any yearlings or fawns that come in there no one's going to take her home range from her at this point she's kind of just hanging out doing her own thing hanging out with the same deer when you think about a, a two and a half or three and a half year old buck you think about what's led him up to that point point. one he started off as a button buck hanging out in one of those doe groups so he's hanging out with a certain group of of, of individual deer then at some point he's going to get kicked out and he's probably going to be spending some time wandering around it could be a little bit of a distance it could be a little bit further of a distance but he's going to try to come into his own somewhere in the summertime he's going to hang out with a bachelor group um you know as they're growing velvet and they don't have that testosterone push moving forward they're 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 hanging out with other deer then in the fall of the season especially as they become reproductively fit um you know they're they're cruising over a very large area trying to again breed with as many does as possible. that combined with the fact that they generally have larger body sizes, which means they need to consume a lot more, um, plant material, which right. can have the disease, the, the prions associated with it as well. They just have, uh, their, their body, their body type and their, and their behavior is more conducive to being exposed to prions, um, than, than a doe is because they're trying to interact with a lot more deer over the course of their year or the course of their life. And they're, they're in the environment, a lot more consuming, more forage, um, scent checking, um, scrapes and, and, and licking sticks and, and whatever fighting other bucks. Um, they're just exposed to a lot more things. So that's generally why I, th- I think you see higher prevalences in, in bucks than does and older bucks than does.
0: And the prevalence probably coincides with the preference of the type of deer that hunters in Michigan want to harvest. So most likely he or she is going to want to target a buck on opening day or throughout the season um, before they go on and move on to the antler list tag. So I've got to think that most hunters in Michigan are checking in more bucks at the check stations than does, correct?
1: Yeah, when we talk about prevalence, you know, we talk about how many are testing positive over how many are being tested in total. Right. And, right. you know, when and there's there's no doubt that, you know, hunters – prefer to, to, to focus on bucks. Um, so especially in Michigan, you know, our sample size is a lot greater with bucks than it is does. Um, but then what you do is you test it, the number of positive over the number total tested to get an overall prevalence. And then that really sort of tells, helps tell you where, um, you know, the disease is lying within that, that specific age and sex cohort. And, and looking at the data from Wisconsin, who again has been dealing with this now for what they know of well over 15 years and probably closer to to 20 or 25 years before they even found it. Um, You know, the older bucks tend to be more likely to have the disease than younger bucks or, or does.
0: Yeah, looking at Wisconsin, you might disagree with this, but I think it's been the most controversial state in how they're handling everything. It's almost like they're the guinea pig of what other states are looking at to see what's working, what's not working, because their herd has been so infected by it. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of things that people agree with and a lot of things that folks don't agree with with how they're managing and how they have been managing over the past 10 to 20 years. But the state of Michigan, after you guys look at states like that, what is what have you guys been doing over the last few years to start a plan of attack to slow this thing down?
1: Yeah, so, so when you look into Wisconsin, um, I, I think most states that look into Wisconsin today um, don't want what they're currently dealing with, that that level of infection, that level of spread. They don't want that to to be experienced in their state. And I think that's what's causing a lot of managers like myself um, concern and, and why we're trying to take s- some additional precautions to try to prevent that from happening. Um you know, Wisconsin was very, very aggressive at treating this early on. Um, So to give you a little bit of background, once once it was discovered in early, it was actually, the animals were actually harvested in late 2001 and confirmed in early 2002 in Wisconsin. In 2002, the fall of it later in the year, uh, I believe they tested over 40,000 deer, but they found like over 200 positive animals. Um, the number was incredible. So it had clearly been there for a while and, 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 you know, being really the first state with a high deer population in the Midwest and a productive deer population, you know, otherwise before it was seen just mostly out West, you know, I don't think that they really knew what was going to happen with it. So the approach that they took probably made sense at the time, but we know now that it was sort of a, a flawed approach because you you can't get rid of it. Um, they were fairly successful at keeping the prevalence down for a long time um, through some of their measures, but ultimately those measures were not really supported by hunters. And that's really a key um, when you bring forward a, a recommendation. It, you know, it, You can have the best biologically sound recommendation brought forward, but if it doesn't have support, it's going to fail um, so I think that's been a lot of our focus moving forward is trying to craft some sort of regulations where hunters can buy in to, a, a, an approach that balances disease management, but keeps deer management at a high, high level as well. And we've had a lot of conversations and a lot of, um, productive conversations to try to find out what that, what that middle point is, um, because, some things that hunters want aren't necessarily conducive to disease management, and th- some things that are um, appropriate for disease management might not be supported by hunters. So we're really trying to find that sweet spot in the middle that that's gonna gets gonna work for both, and, and time will tell whether or not we're successful at it or not.
0: Yeah, I agree. Hunters are very important in this whole process, and you know anyone out there who think th- who is a hunter and think that this thing is gonna eradicate itself or take care of itself, like you said earlier. We love it when Mother Nature runs its course and takes care of itself, but in this one, there's this disease persists in states for decades. And if you there's some articles out there that you'll read that when the CWD outbro- outbreak took place in Wisconsin, hunting licenses uh, fell by 10% during this period, which at the same time was, you know, the disease started to spread and its increase in its reach. Uh, you know, really took off there for a little bit, and now licenses licenses in the state of uh, Wisconsin are back up to where they were pre CWD, but you can see that dip in licenses and not, you know, hunters not participating. It really took an effect on the disease in a negative way.
1: Yeah, and and you gotta also remember some of the timeline associated with it, and and to Wisconsin's credit, they have contributed a lot of knowledge, uh, on what CWD is and isn't over the past, you know, 15 years. So they've really advanced what we know about CWD. Um, uh, so, so there's a lot of credit that should be given to, uh, the individuals in that area, in that state that are researching it. But, you know, when you talk about 2002, um, when they found it and, and not knowing a whole lot about the disease back then, there wasn't a lot of discussion on it. And that was really right on the heels of, uh what what occurred in in the UK in the late 1990s which was mad cow disease and and we know that people died from eating infected beef you know with mad cow disease and so there was a there was a scare associated with whether if if someone goes out and shoots a deer that has chronic wasting disease which is a, a similar disease to mad cow disease and people have died from within the past 10 years Will that happen to me? So there was there was obviously a, a I don't want to say a hysteria, but a huge concern associated sure. with this disease. Now, since that time, there's been a lot of research on chronic wasting disease and potentially its ability to get into humans, and and there's right now no real support that it can get into humans. So I think a lot of that initial fear that you saw back in the early 2000s has subsided a little bit because we know a lot, so much more about the disease. Now that's not to say that at some point in the future, someone couldn't contract the disease, but there does seem to be a really strong species barrier um, between CWD and humans. So what what our department has done is maintain recommendations from, from wildlife health officials with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the World Health Organization basically says, if you're hunting in an area that has known CWD or you harvest a deer that has CWD, we recommend you don't eat it. But ultimately, the choice lies to the hunter and whether or not they want to they want to move forward with that decision.
0: Right, and, and in the state of Michigan, if you harvest a deer, obviously, if someone wants to get it tested, they can get it tested. Uh, how? Yeah,
1: so that's a service that we are are willing to provide to any hunter in Michigan if they want to have their deer tested. Um, it, basically, as you're hunting in either the early uh, September seasons or throughout October, or November, or December just bring your deer into a check station. So what they need, so what our check station staff needs is, is the head of the animal specifically right at the, right at the, the base of the head at the top of the neck are, are is a tissue within there called the retropharyngeal lymph nodes. And it sort of lies right above, you know how deer kind of have an Adam's apple on their throat. It lies right above that, right under their jawline. Okay. And, and we take the entire head, um, obviously the, the, the hunters are, are willing to keep the, the antlers. And we, we've worked with a couple taxidermists in case you want to do like a, a shoulder mount or a European mount. We've got a couple of trained taxidermists out there that are willing to cape it out for you. So you can still get the mount that you want um, and still be able to submit the animal for testing. So, so that's something that we've done here in recent years, and we're going to continue to expand upon that. But uh, it's a free test. Take it to the check station. Um, we'll either t- direct you to a, a taxidermist who can cape it out for you and, and get the, the test for you, or we'll just take the head right there, and, and you know, if you just want the rack, we'll cut it off for you. We'll send it to our disease lab, and usually within about a week we'll get results back that says whether or not the animal is uh, CWD-positive or or we couldn't detect it at all. And it's a, it's a free test, so that's something that the state of Michigan has been covering, so you really have nothing to lose on it.
0: Okay, and say say someone takes a deer head in, they get the test results and it is positive. Mm-hmm. What should there be a standard of practice, which maybe some people are doing, some people are not doing when handling the carcass of the animal, just to be preventative, whether they know that the, the deer has the disease or not, what should they be doing? Do you still, you know, bury the, the guts or do you, I mean, what's the proper way would you recommend, uh, until they get those test results back.
1: Yeah, so mo- most hunters, by the time they get the test results back, the deer will be processed and, and in their freezer. Um, you know, that meat will probably be wrapped in freezer paper um, and, and just waiting to be consumed over the course of of the next, you know, a couple months to year. Um, personally, you know, what we do is we tend to recommend not consuming um, the animal until you get the test result back. That's a personal decision. Um, and that, that sort of flies in the face of what a lot of people have done. I I don't know about you, Lee, but you know, when I've harvested deer before, usually my, my first meal or or my meal that night is sort of those inner tenderloins. Um, we always called them, I know where I grew up, we called them like fish loins or whatever. I don't don't know where that word came from, but it's those inner tenderloins. That's just basically the, um, the prime rib or, or, yeah. And, uh, just so, just so good. We I, I don't do that anymore. I wait to get my uh, or the filet mignon. I guess I should have said, but that's uh, that's the piece that uh, we always ate that first year out of that first year, and uh, we we hold off on doing that until we get results back. From a disposal standpoint, yeah, it probably makes sense to try to dispose of it in a proper way, and and really the best thing that you can do is 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 a burial of the carcass and specifically the the infectious the, the more likely infectious material which would include your brain and spinal column because it is a disease that affects the central nervous system. Okay. Now burying a deer sometimes in December in northern Michigan might not be very easy. That ground's probably pretty frozen. Um so so a lot of times, you know, checking with a local um you know, garbage Facility or, or refuse facility, and whether or not they take, you know, carcasses and, and bagged up, putting it in a landfill would be a, a very much appropriate way to dispose of those carcasses. What what is what is not the most responsible thing to do is taking that deer that you shot in, um, say Montcalm County, and driving it up north to Sheboygan County to a, a farm or a cabin and and trying to shoot coyotes over it and leaving that carcass out there on the landscape. That that presents a risk, and that's something that is going to have to be an education effort moving forward, that moving carcasses on the landscape has the potential to move the disease around. And that's something we want to try to get out to our hunters to be responsible on how they're utilizing and moving these carcasses.
0: Yeah, that information that you just disclosed right there, that's the kind of thing that we as hunters need to hear, because really it's it's changing hunting practices and hunting traditions with the introduction of this disease in our state so i you know anyone out there probably it's a good idea to have that meat checked first make sure that it's healthy before you start consuming it but like you said it is a personal decision and the other thing i want to talk about is i like how you guys this year you had like a like a public forum you went over you went all over the state of michigan and you informed the public but at the same time you guys were looking for opinion as well can you talk about what you know, the feedback that you guys got and what are, did you gather any ideas from, uh, you know, hunters throughout Michigan throughout those, those forums or those open meetings?
1: Yeah. So, so we're sitting here talking in, in July and we've been, we've been having discussions with a lot of sportsmen and and folks in, in Michigan really going back to January. So this has been a long process that's led us to where we're at today. Um, we, we've taken sort of a multifaceted approach. So one of the approaches that we had did was we had a, a small group and, and I was fortunate enough to be a part of that meet with, I think it was like 10 to 12 different sportsmen groups all across um, the state of Michigan and talk about what their concerns are with CWD if, if there are any um, and then what, what the agency's management approach should be and what, what level of what level of detail should we go into? Because at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're biologists, and we can look at the data and say, yeah, this is this is concerning or not concerning. But but we are we are managing wildlife in a for a public trust, and and we're managing it for the public. So we need to talk with members of the public to find out how we really should be managing these animals. And and and, and part of that includes um, understanding, you know, what their level of interest, not interest, but um, what their level of uh, concern is about cwd and then apply you know take that that feedback and then apply it through a regulatory process to try to make sure we're managing deer and the disease that's in line with the best recommendations with science but also what our public is wanting to see done with it so we've had some conversations with a lot of leadership and partners with with conservation groups that we we have relationships established relationships with and then what you referenced, um, you know, there are a lot of people that are hunters and have an interest in, in deer and deer management that are not affiliated with these organizations that we historically work with. Um, so we wanted to sort of get a broader scale approach and talk with some of those folks as well. And that's why we we, we had presentations set up. I believe it was 11 different towns or cities across the state of Michigan um, trying to raise awareness about what this disease is. And then trying to accumulate some of that feedback on what level of concern it should be and what steps they feel we should be taking. And and that was uh it was an interesting process. I'm not sure too many other states have gone to that sort of level of of detail in, in planning things out, especially early on in this process.
0: Okay. And then from that, what kind of issues would you say were brought up by the everyday hunter? I mean, is it just kind of the things that we were talking about? Were they just wanting to know more about the disease, how to prevent it, what you guys are doing to prevent it in these counties?
1: Yeah. So I think that's what really sort of came out is one, we, we, we found out that, um, though there, there's obviously an informed segment of, of our hunters about it. There's a lot of one misinformation out there. And two, there's a lot of people that really don't know a lot about it at all. So that's one of the things that we're going to be focusing on over the the coming months and even years is 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 raising awareness, trying to trying to get people to understand what this disease is, what the potential impacts are going to be. Um, And then when you talk with hunters, um, one of the things that they always want to do is, you know, the, the disease sounds scary. It sounds concerning, but. How is it going to affect my day to day, especially if I'm not in an area which that's identified chronic wasting disease? So they want to understand what that looks like, and then I think they want to understand why those decisions are being made, if it is going to have an impact, specifically a negative impact. Um, so, so we want to try to talk with them about that, and we certainly hear some of those concerns. And, and, and this is a this is a very polarizing disease. So, um, because some people don't see the, the potential impact long-term. Some people don't believe that it's uh, a, a something to worry about at all. Um, and then some people take, take a lot of fear and, and, and concern with what the, the data shows from other states. Um, and that's, that's what we're trying to balance out is uh, what those two sides mean and trying to, trying to make meaningful recommendations that are responsible for both disease and deer management.
0: Yeah, and this disease to me seems like such a head-scratcher. There's no, you know, right way to approach this thing because in some states, calling everything and, you know, taking a significant amount of more deer seems to have a negative impact on the herd that is affected with CWD over time. Um, You know, they've got the issues with baiting still in Michigan. I mean, even before CWD, baiting was always an issue, throughout the state in different areas Um, you know it's it's such a head scratcher but I had read that you guys um, at the DNR recommended or are going to recommend for I think it's 2019 to stop baiting in is it just the affected counties in the lower peninsula or all the lower peninsula
1: yeah so so our current proposal on the board and and this will probably be decided by our Natural Resources Commission in August and just as a side, if, if if anybody that's listening is not aware in how regulations are made. So the DNR proposes regulations, and then we, we have a governing body, which is essentially seven individuals who are appointed by either the governor or previous governors, and they serve either several terms generally, um, that ultimately take the information and the proposal that we bring forward and, and try to balance that with public comment and, and the best available science, and then either move forward or approve those proposals or make amendments or or or, and slightly change it or deny it um so so there's there's a sort of regulatory process there that um, everything is vetted through Uh, our natural resources commission will probably make that these decisions in august so right now everything is still up for discussion and and they're certainly taking public comment on what people would like to see but our current proposal is to Ban baiting and feeding in what we're calling the affected counties, um, which is essentially a a 16 county deer management unit or CWD management unit that we've identified, Um, that would be done immediately. Okay. So, no baiting and feeding in 16 counties this year, five of which are already in place, um, and two of which have already previously been done through an interim order, and then that interim order has expired so some of those places would not be really affected or changed because it's already banned but it would be expanded based on the scope of what we're finding and then as of the end of january of next year uh, abating and feeding prohibition would go in throughout the entirety of the lower peninsula um, for for the future for future years and and obviously that would be intended to be kept um, but as you're probably well aware, regulations come and go and things get reversed all the time over time. So um our intent would be to keep that and then whether or not that stays long term is still up for debate.
0: Right. And this is something that's been out there, you know, our food plots baiting. But are small food plots I mean I mean, obviously they're a threat still, but in these affected areas, but are you guys gonna regulate those at all or no? Baiting, can you just determine the or define the term of baiting in the state of Michigan's eyes?
1: Yeah. So so baiting and feeding would essentially be any any item that you are transporting into the field um, with the intention of consumption. So whether that's, you know, uh, two gallons of sugar beets or carrots or shelled corn okay. or or a salt block, anything that's putting out you're putting out with the intention of being consumed um, is is essentially baiting and feeding. When you get into food plots, you're right, that it starts to get a little bit slippery of a slope um, because that that is planted out there. And those, those are plants that, you know, you've put in the soil and they're growing and, and sure, they are planted with the intention of being consumed as well. The difference, I guess, in the department's eyes is that one, we have a ton of agriculture already in the state and that's not going to go away, obviously. This is sort of a lesser level of that. And and there's certainly still risk associated with food plots. I don't want to minimize that. It's just much harder to regulate. The other piece that comes into play is the idea of replenishment. So if you put two gallons of corn out and it's consumed that evening, you can continually cycle that through and continually draw deer to a very small, concentrated uh, piece of ground every day um right. in a food plot a lot of times once that plant that individual plant is compromised or or, or eaten to the ground it's pr- it's growing for the for the year is probably done so you have an animal that a deer that that nibbles down a whatever it would be a like a small uh i guess brassica or um any sort of uh, seed or anything like that plant that they're just going to nibble it right down uh, with the exception of some things like clover, which continually can take cuttings and growings, um, it's pretty much gone. And that's, I think, was what a lot of individuals continue to plant. The other thing that we're looking at is from baiting standpoint, it's, it's really an additive component. So we know that deer are on the landscape. They're socializing. They're concentrating under oak trees. They're concentrating under uh, little crab apples or anything like that. We know that's going to happen. We know we can't stop that. But, you know, the one thing that we can control is people bringing food out into the into the environment and, art, again, artificially concentrating them at a level higher than what it is. So we don't expect a baiting and feeding ban to stop the transmission cycle of CWD, but we do expect it to slow it down.
0: Yeah, it's just, you know, again, it's up to us as hunters to, before we step out into the field this season, this fall, uh, you know, not— We've got to take all this information, and at the end of the day, it's a it's a moral choice as you as a hunter, before you step out there, to are you taking all the preventative actions to prevent this disease, the spread of this disease, knowing that obviously you're not going to eradicate it from your property or your area if it is infected in, in your county, but at least you're doing your part. And I think it's going to be on a lot of our minds before we head out to the the stand this year are we doing the right things? And getting to that is, you know, I'm a hunter. Say, say if I'm a hunter this year and I'm in my stand and I see the symptoms of these type of deer who are infected with CWD, you want us to, to obviously harvest that animal, report it, Correct.
1: Yeah, so if you see an animal that's that's really sick, um, if you get one on a trail camera, if you're out there and you see one that clearly looks looks ill, um, wh- what we've done and, and we've got some proposals in that's one of the packages is, if you can just simply get authorization from a biologist, if you can show them the picture and or, or talk to them, or if you've already built up that reputation with a biologist or a conservation officer that they know you, you they know they know that you're a stand up person and you say, listen, I've got a deer that is just skin and bones and not acting well in my trail camera, if I see it, can I just shoot it? You can get verbal authorization from a DNR representative um, to to, heart, to put that animal down, and then you would be required to submit the entire animal for testing. But that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get any animal who's a suspect animal or, or likely to have CWD off the landscape as quickly as possible. And obviously, those animals that are showing symptoms are going to be expelling, uh, those prions at a higher level than an animal that, uh, is just infected, um, and, and hasn't run through the cycle yet. So
0: we,
1: we, we definitely want to hear about those. We definitely want to know about those, get them tested and then find out where that animal is, because if we can detect it early on, there's, there's a really good chance that we can not necessarily eliminate all the prions from the environment, but at least minimize the number of animals that would be exposed to it. So I'll give you the example. The first deer that we identified in um, Meridian Township in Ingham County, she was symptomatic. She was obviously put down by local local uh, police force. Um, we started doing some surveillance. And, and in that area, it's very suburban in nature. So we can't really rely on hunters a whole lot. Uh, and we know that there's a lot of deer. So we did have some sharpshooters come in. We picked up a few additional positive deer, um, but over time, and we've, we've tested a lot of roadkill, too, in that area. Over time, um, we haven't been finding any CWD-positive animals in that area. And actually, all of 2017, even though we tested hundreds and hundreds of deer out of that township, we did not find one animal that tested positive for CWD. So that's that's a success in our eyes. You know, we found it in 2015. We treated it aggressively, and I don't want to say that it's gone from that immediate localized area, but it's been almost two years since we've identified CWD in that spot. And that's that's encouraging to me. It is encouraging. Um, so when we find it and we know it's there, um, we want to try to get at it really quickly, and that we feel like we can, if it's if it truly is just introduced in that area feel like we can be successful in sort of getting rid of it from that immediate area. And like I said, the prions will still probably be in the environment, but the, the analogy I always say is if I, if I go out into the woods and throw two quarters out there, the odds of you finding two quarters is really, really small. If I go out there and throw $10,000 worth of quarters out there, you're going to find some of them.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And
1: it's a, it's a concentration level thing. So, um, we want to keep those concentrations in the environment very low and, and early detection is the best way to do that.
0: If you harvest one during the hunting season, does that still go against your tag limit?
1: So previously what we've done is if you harvest one, that's positive and, and most of the animals that people harvest are, are not showing symptoms. They look like a healthy deer and it comes back as positive. We have been replacing that license free of charge. And even what we did last year, because we were getting so many, we were issuing replacement licenses for the following year Oh, okay. because, because people were shooting deer in late November, early December, you know, to give them a replacement license for that year when they may be done hunting, it doesn't really do a whole lot for them. So we were giving them even replacement licenses for this coming year. Um, so we've, we've been, we've been, I guess, comping <laughs> the, the licenses. So if you shoot a positive one, and And if you do get it tested, we'll, we'll we'll replace your license for
0: you. Okay. And the play devil's advocate here, just so the audience is aware, which I sure um, some of some of you are. There is a an opposition or a group of people who oppose the findings and the claims that the DNR are saying are happening in the state of Michigan. So for example, a very influential voice in the hunting community, Ted Nugent, believes that, you know, this is all a scam and um, and, and is a huge skeptic of chronic waste disease in the state of Michigan. Basically, what he's saying is it's been here for years, and um, you know, to bring it to the attention of the public like this in the manner that the DNR has done so is harmful to the sport of deer hunting in the state of Michigan. And listen, I love Ted, but. I do feel this is spreading and it is something that we should be alarmed with.
1: Yeah. And, and I, I think it is too. Um, you know, when we look at, when we look into places like Wyoming, when we look into places like, uh, Wisconsin, you know, places that have had it for a lot longer than we've had it, the trends to me are, I don't even know if concerning is the right word anymore. There's, there's, there's almost an, a level of, uh, alarm that starts to happen. So in Wyoming, some of the prevalence that we're seeing in some of those areas is in excess of 40 and 40 percent, 30 and 40 percent, which means three out of every 10 deer or two out of every five deer have CWD. And yeah, they might live with this disease for a year to a year and a half. But, you know, the concern starts to be if these animals are getting exposed at such a young age and we know that the life cycle of I don't want to say life cycle, the cycle of CWD occurs at about 18 to 24 months. In most cases, when are, when are does having their first fawns? It's generally in their second year of life, right? Cause mm-hmm. you know, in Southern Michigan, we, we obviously know that certain fawns get bred, but you know, if, if deer is getting exposed as a fawn, you know, and you run a two year cycle, it's basically going to die from the disease or it's not going to have a chance to have fawns, essentially what it amounts to. So there's there's a certain level of concern with what this looks like long-term. When we when we bring forward recommendations or when we talk about management of this disease, I think what happens is a lot of state agencies apply what we call the precautionary principle. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but basically it, it, it's, it states, and, and I'm hopefully gonna say this right, in the absence of, like, pure, you know, understanding of what's going on, if there's a little bit of caution, we tend to be very conservative or, or very uh, very hesitant in our approach to make sure that, that this is not going to be impacted. So when you get critics that say we're going too far and overregulating, I get that because you're not seeing the immediate impacts. But what we're seeing is long-term impacts elsewhere that have been dealing with it we wanna be very conservative because we're, we're paid to manage a resource for sustainability. And when we see a threat to that sustainability, we're gonna take actions to try to prevent that threat from, from taking hold. And if that's a regulatory piece or an inconvenience piece, then so be it because ultimately, deer are a, a extremely prized resource for our agency and for a lot of people in Michigan. And we wanna make sure that that's around for a long time so we're going to be very conservative and try to make sure that this disease doesn't take hold where the precautionary principle starts to break down is everybody has different levels of quote unquote risk and it's it's what makes people decide to buckle their seatbelt or not buckle their seatbelt to jump out of a plane or not jump out of a plane right so when people see you know one individual or one agency taking a very conservative approach, it doesn't—it might not necessarily align with their level of risk. And if they're not seeing the immediate impacts of that risk, then then it looks like overregulation or or extremely burdensome to to, to the hunting public. And that's when that's when you get the vocal outcry. Um, so it's there's still passion and desire from both sides to do what's best for the resource you're just taking a different spectrum along the way and in, in what you looking at long-term or one group is looking at it in terms of, we wanna make sure that this disease doesn't harbor a, 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 or, or jeopardize that resource long-term. Another group is looking at it and saying, well, we're not seeing that jeopardy occur in, in, in certain areas that have been dealing with it for 10 years or five years or even 15 years. So what's, what's the risk? Um, And there's there's I'm not sure that some of those two sides will ever come together. So I think the best thing that an agency can do is try to prevent I'm sorry, present both sides of the argument and let people decide and and make their own decision based on on the information that's available and and not try to water it down, not try to cherry pick the data, present all the information that's Mm -hmm. that's relevant and then let let people decide what they feel is is the most appropriate course of action.
0: I agree. And to pull a positive out of it, I'm actually happy to see the passion from both sides because that shows you that not only is our sport of hunting alive and something that is truly cared about, but it also shows a lot of conservation efforts, um, from both sides because they both have their opinion on what they believe, you know, the best, you know, conservative measures are, but I'm just happy that that passion exists on both sides. And, you know, like you said, we're preventing facts, or we're presenting facts. We're we're showing data, and, and it's up to us as hunters to make an informed decision.
1: Yeah, and I I agree. at the At the end of the day, like two people or two groups might look across the table and and disagree with the approach and and what is being taken, but I. I I hope that they could still get up from that table and agree that everybody still has the best interest of the resource in mind. And I think that's what's occurring. There's just, there's just a difference of opinion in in how to approach that.
0: Yep. Absolutely. Well, Chad, thanks for everything, man. We've, I've become more informed. I've learned a ton of what you guys are doing. I appreciate what you guys are doing. And uh, if anybody wants to find out more information, where should they start?
1: Yeah. We've got a great website. Um, it's, it's mi.gov slash CWD. Um, once we get into the hunting season, we update our running totals on what's being tested, what's being found. We've got a lot of great information there. We've got some fantastic videos. If you get onto our Michigan DNR YouTube channel that talks about, uh, we've got, we brought in uh, a lot of researchers and, and managers from all over the country last, last October and what we call our CWD symposium, and we taped all those and we put them on our YouTube channel. And, and there are different topics that are being discussed. And if you're really interested in about this this topic, we, we literally brought in some of the best and brightest around the country to talk about it. And there's some great videos there that's worth watching as well. And that's all linked to our mi.gov slash CWD website. So I'd encourage anybody to go there uh, and check it out.
0: Okay, I'll find those websites too and um link them in the show notes for anybody listening who wants to check them out and it'll be a quick way to get there. Chad, dude, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and educating us all more on CWD and uh keep doing what you're doing.
1: Thanks Lee, appreciate you having me on. Uh it was a blast.
0: You know, being a a hunter and a whitetail deer hunter all my life. This podcast was eye-opening for me and um I'm super glad that I did it because I learned a lot of information about chronic waste disease, but not only how it affected or it is affecting us in the state of Michigan, but also other states where maybe the disease has been more prevalent for a long period of time, like the state of Wisconsin, who's been dealing with it for decades. And at the same time, I'm I'm thankful for Wisconsin um, and their willingness in other states to share their information of what they have learned out of what is working and what is not working against this disease. Because think about it. Can you imagine if, you know, we found out about this disease that, you know, it originated out West and then it came to Michigan first, you know, we would have no idea what to do or how to prevent this thing from spreading. You know, unfortunately for Wisconsin, they got hit very early on in this, in the expansion of this thing uh, throughout the United States. But, if not for their information and data, we could be really, um, really behind uh, you know, methods of trying to figure out how to control this thing. And the reason why also too, I think it's important to question sometimes the DNR about what they're doing. And um rather than argue or or divide and, and have this me versus them kind of thing. That's why I brought up Ted Nugent's opposition or his his opinions, because at, at the same time, I think it's okay to question the DNR, but at the same time, they've also reached out to us in the public and asked for public feedback about what our opinions are and what the, and what we think or what we're seeing or what they should do. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's important for us to stand up and uh, reach across the table and come to a conclusion or fight together against this thing and uh, figure out how to, how to prevent it, prevent the spread. And, uh, it doesn't, not only does it test us as hunters, but it also tests us as conservationists to protect this natural resource we have. So as always, guys, thanks for listening. And, um, you know what? Share your opinion, right? Write me an email on, uh, go to the website and write me an email. I'll share some of those opinions on the next show and, and what some people are saying and what they're, what they think and what they're seeing. It's important. It's important to talk about. So as always, guys, thanks for listening.